Welcome to the Quiller Report and Review. This is a weekly uh, opportunity for us uh, at the Aquila Report to review the top 10 articles that you as the readers uh, chose by clicking on them and reading those articles, interacting with them, and sharing them with others. And so this gives us an opportunity for the this week when we come into episode, episode four of the Aquila Report and Review uh, the, for the uh, newsletter top 10 newsletter will be coming out on January 5 and uh, so if you uh, get the Aquila report you automatically get that newsletter in your box uh, if you do not receive it and you're listening to this podcast just go to the aquilareport.com and uh, you will find a place to uh, sign up for a free subscription to the top 10 articles of the week and I'm here with uh, Paul Harrell and he and I have the opportunity of reviewing these things beforehand and just discussing them so that it sort of whets your appetite for what uh, is coming up and so that you can then at uh, your leisure go and look at the uh, uh, these articles when it comes these 10 uh, top 10 articles come into your box so welcome uh, then again and Paul it's uh, yep. looks like we have another good list of uh, articles do. And it shows, again, what the uh, readers are interested in because uh, we post eight articles every day, uh, which means there are 56, and uh, here are the top 10 that um, were chosen uh, just by the fact that people read them, had interest in them, and that's how we arrive at this. We just know we don't tell them that's what we're going to do. People now know it, but uh, they just say this is an in- these are interesting articles. Click on it, read it, interact with them. Yeah, Happy New Year, everybody. And uh, Dominic, you're exactly right. Uh, It's a good list this week. We're going to get to it in just a minute. I want to remind everybody to please uh, rate the podcast, especially if you're listening on Apple. Rate it five stars. That really helps us out. As well as uh, give the Aquila Report a follow over on Twitter. Okay, yes, right. At at Aquila Report uh, is the uh, Twitter handle. Okay, well, uh, Paul, we have the the first... Um, article that <clears throat> comes up is the uh, let me as soon as I get this here is the evangelical voters and uh, here is the, this article by Dr. Terry Johnson uh, Terry is the uh, pastor of the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah Georgia and a member of the Presbyterian Church in America the PCA. And uh, he wrote this sort of as a postscript to this re- the recent election and talking about sort of the makeup of the voters. That's where the concept of the title, the uh, evangelical voters, uh, the sub thread underneath the title is says the overwhelming evangelical for uh, Trump support for Trump causes consternation in some circles, incomprehension in others. And so the th- this seemed like it was one of those areas of a battle within the family. So as broad evangelicals and uh, would, however, that's categorized and everyone probably has his or her own definition of what evangelical means. But those that would at least be in that broad category of evangelical voters, uh, there was uh, some uh, debate that was going on in one of the articles from last week's um, 
Cool report, the top 10. Uh, we dealt with that, and you can go back into last week's articles, and you can see that uh, dealing with the the wrestling that, and again, the debate that was happening within the evangelical movement, however you define it, uh, to um, to say that there's something that's sort of happening here. And so Dr. Johnson uh, takes a stab at it at, uh, sort of as a um, you know, rethink um, a after the action um, briefing, uh, what what's going on. He starts out once again, there's a post-election discussion of evangelicals voting habits. Apparently around 80 percent voted for President Trump again in 2020, as they did in 2016. And this was the case, despite a number of high profile evangelicals urging the alternative, that is voting for Biden, a third part or a third party candidate or skipping the president election altogether. And the overwhelming evangelical support for Trump causes consternation in some circles, as we said, and comprehension in others. How can Bible-believing uh, Christians vote for a man of this character? And uh, that's one of the arguments that's made on those who have difficulty uh, voting for uh, Trump uh, over against those who are uh, see recognize his flaws but still vote for him. So why why is that happening? And so Dr. Johnson's wrestling with that. And he's laying out some of his um, uh, suppositions with regard to this, where he says, first, it's important to recognize their concentrations of power that rest in our nation today. Serious Christians care about power because so often God presents himself as a defender of the powerless, uh, the champion of the widow, the fatherless, the orphan and the poor, the voice of the voiceless. So you, he just says we have this sense of uh, uh, power. Who are the power sources? Where are the perceived power centers? And then he also deals with uh, what about those who are the powerless? And he begins that section of his uh, essay with the, the most shocking movement of the 2020 election was for many the rally on a Saturday night. On the Saturday night before the election, when about 57,000 people showed up for a Trump rally in Butler, Pennsylvania, the crowd shots showed a majority blue collar, unsophisticated middle American uh, crowd, whether one loves or hates, approves or disapproves of the president, uh, Trump uh, is not the issue. However, the devotion of the Trump supporters is the phenomenon worth exploring. And that's what he, he does in this particular article. So, like I said, it's like an after action. Uh, what can we learn from it? And where? what does this portend uh, for the the church, the relationship of evangelicals with one another within local churches, within denominations, within the broader scope of, uh, the, uh, of the church? Uh, Paul, so what's your read? On yeah, this? I mean, the reminder here that I get in this article as I read it is that uh, kind of from last week, the uh, evangelical elites uh, in the institutions, the intellectual side of things, are they seem to side against Trump and against the evangelical voter who's supporting Trump time and time again. And in doing so, they are actually in agreement with all of our culture, it seems like. Now, I know they would say, no, we're talking about the Trump culture. But I mean, if you think about it, it just permeates through the mainstream media, through anything that you're supposed to consume, through all of our advertising, all of the all of the arbiters, the giant corporations, they all can't stand Trump. And, you know, coincidentally, a lot of not all, but a lot of the, uh, you know, the evangelical elites do as well. This is 
you know, it just it, it really just confirmed a lot of what we talked about last week, Dominic. And again, the number one article uh, from last week that, you know, readers chose, readers clicked on. Here is uh, the very last paragraph. Is there any mystery why evangelicals would make common cause with the Trumpians? I'm sorry that some will choose to join the media chorus denouncing the Trump supporters as racist, sexist, homophobes. There is virtue signaling satisfaction that comes with doing so. I am hopeful that others will honestly consider the moral, political, social, and economic program of Trumpian politics, compare it with the progressive program, and reconsider who exactly are the voiceless, the oppressed, the poor, the despised in our country. Christian preference for the powerless over the powerful is not a, no, no, a novel phenomena. The unborn, the uneducated, the unemployed, the unheard, and the unprogressive are not unnatural allies for disciples of Christ. And I think this, in a lot of ways, Dominic, echoes a piece that came out over the weekend, and it is up right now at theaquilareport.com. It's a link to the American Spectator. Uh, headline is... It's a link to the American Spectator, the salt that has lost its savor, the woke church and the undoing of America. Uh, and it's by Larry Alex Taunton. And it's sure to, you know, it's sure to provoke somebody one way or the other. But I, I think it also kind of echo, echoes this, you know, sort of piling on the evangelical who dares vote for, uh, you know, for Donald Trump or supports what. Trump has done. And in it, there's an interesting point that's made that some of our Christian leaders uh, seem to hold the president to a higher standard, their president to a higher standard than they would their barber or their mechanic or their, uh, I don't know, their banker. And, and, and really the only answer that comes to mind when we're presented with this phenomena is uh, peer pressure is, is wanting the acceptance of the culture. And you know, what's interesting, Dominic, is this whole Trump uh, presidency, is an experiment in uh, uh, the is Christians having a great opportunity of telling people what Christianity is, what the gospel is, and what the gospel isn't. Meaning, well, you know, there are no perfect presidents because there are no perfect people, and the gospel isn't a set of rules that you check a box next to and you get to get into heaven. That's not what the gospel is. You know, the gospel is about people who have no hope except for Christ. That's what the gospel's about. And instead of using this four years as an opportunity to do that, in a lot of ways, there has been some corrective measure and in, in the use of straw men to try to – I'm not really sure what they're trying to accomplish, but I, I suspect it has to do with getting uh, the acceptance of, of those that maybe don't want to have difficult conversations or want acceptance of those in academia. Um, but you know, I, I leave that for you guys out there to decide. That's right. And I think uh, we'll see a little bit more of this. Another article that's in this top uh, 10 list uh, will actually uh, deal with it, uh, uh, reviewing uh, a movie, a book and a movie uh, dealing with um, sort of this uh, sort of flyover country, as some people would call it, or what people think of those that are not part of the considered uh, elite academically or otherwise. So we'll we'll. Uh, come back, uh, circle back to this again. So this uh, one would be the um, Evangelical uh, Voters uh, by Dr. Johnson. And so we commend that to you. Now, the second one maybe touches on this as well. 
uh, in this number two, and it's basically uh, titled Two Prominent Pastors uh, Break with the Southern Baptist Convention After Critical Race Theory Statement. These are two uh, black pastors in prominent uh, churches that were affiliated or aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and it says these two men wrote an op-ed announcing their decisions to leave. Uh, There's Charlie Dates of Chicago's Progressive Baptist Church and Ralph D. West of Houston's The Church Without Walls. And both of these uh, men criticized the uh, Southern Baptist Convention seminary presidents. There are six seminaries that are affiliated with and aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention uh, for taking a declaration that critical race theory was, quote, incompatible with the denomination statement of faith. Uh, this is, has been the, the whole notion of critical race theory is something we have chatted about before here on the Quill uh, Report and Weekly Review. Um, uh, and it's something that is very prominent within our um, culture right now. And it's a sociological theme about how to go about analyzing, looking at, assessing, uh, and interacting with people of different races and uh, how it touches on public policy, uh, how it deals with uh, the educational experience uh, and so forth. So it's a very, uh, it's taken a very prominent role and not only in the area of race, but also in the area of sexual identity, which we'll also be dealing with in just a moment. And so the, the anyway, so it, the, the fact that these, um, the presidents of these uh, six Southern Baptist seminaries uh, issued a joint declaration that was critical of uh, critical race theory um, as incompatible with the nomination statement of faith. And so these two uh, pastors who are prominent within the church and appreciated for what they're doing in ministry uh, decided that they couldn't uh, go um, along with that. And they brought up the importance of the two pastors brought up recognizing the reality of systemic racism alongside the truth and authority of the scripture. So last month in a joint statement, the individual remarks, the six presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention seminaries called critical race theory on biblical and instead of emphasis, uh, instead emphasize the need to turn to Christian teaching alone, uh, not secular ideas to conform, confront racism. And so these two pastors uh, departed from that and uh, took a different position and believed that that was a movement in the wrong direction. Uh, so, like I said, the recent uh, departure caught the attention of Southern Baptist leaders who were disappointed to see them go, particularly fellow African-Americans and the head of the Southern Baptist Convention's National African-American uh, Fellowship which had raised concerns about critical race theory statements a week ago, said he was saddened by the announcement. So it's uh, now this movement is of critical race theory, which has started out in the academic arena. They began moving into the broader public arena through public policy and uh, statements and uh, policy uh, um, laws that were being passed or um, uh, mandates that were being uh, set out by administrators, uh, city councils, uh, states, and even the federal government, uh, it began to have quite an effect. So we see 
how it's now coming to the life of the church to the point where um, it's brought two prominent men to leave the denomination. And I suspect that because of their uh, being uh, seen as respected um, leaders uh, in the church, both for those who are African-American as well as uh, those who may agree with critical race theory as part of looking at dealing with racism who are not African-American that that may have an effect uh, in that church as well. So the Southern Baptist Convention sort of uh, reeling from this uh, at this point. And so it's a good study for us to look at because it'll probably, since Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination uh, membership wise in the country, uh, it sort of sets a standard in some of their pacing may pace for other denominations. Yeah, uh, it is definitely, uh, uh, you know, you could say the canary in the coal mine, maybe. I mean, it's certainly a growing issue that all these all denominations are having to face. I, I think, you know, this is a sad thing that you would have uh, two, uh, two prominent black pastors break with this. Um, and in a way, it's a good thing. I mean, isn't it good that we know? And what I and that that's because I've made up my mind on critical race theory, and I know many of you out there have too. It's not compatible with the gospel. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. You can't pronounce a collective judgment of guilt over people just because of the color <laughs> of their skin, and that's what critical race theory seems to do. Uh, Here is a tweet from Ralph Douglas West, quote, where I stand on the statement by the SBC seminary presidents. That's what's provoked all of this. The Christianity Today article writing, while West says he cannot offer a full affirmation of the theory, he does not see it as incompatible with the gospel. Now, that's interesting to me that it's not incompatible with the gospel, uh, he doesn't affirm the theory, but it's he says, quote, their stand against racism rings hollow when in their next breath they reject theories that have been helpful in framing the problem of racism. So, Dominic, you and I, uh, you and I agree on the inerrancy of Scripture, and we also agree on the sufficiency of Scripture. And I think what we really have here with critical race theory and people that want to say, well, we can use this as a tool is you're not really relying, from what I can see and what I've read, you're not relying on the sufficiency of Scripture to address our societal problems as well. You have to have this extra thing that, by the way, is not compatible with the gospel of Christ, the message of unity. And the whole idea of systematic racism, by the way, uh, lends itself to this word systemic, means the entire system would not function without racism. That is just by... uh, I don't know, it's a self-evident truth, in my opinion, that that is not the case, that it is not that that the entire system doesn't depend on us discriminating against someone because of the color of their skin. And again, this is not I, I, I would love to ask the question to a lot of people out there. I thought about this this week, Dominic, especially when I was reading this. If you could take these uh, these social justice warriors who are standing by critical race theory and saying that it is compatible with the gospel. I wonder if you ask them about people coming to faith in Christ and, and what would be more valuable coming to faith in Christ or, uh, addressing these social concerns. And the bottom line is you and I both know that coming to faith in Christ, repenting and turning to Christ is more valuable 
but they are adding something to that. They are saying, well, it's not enough because we also have to recognize the societal, uh, the societal ills. As far as I'm concerned, that's what I'm seeing here. We have to recognize this, that it's almost like the gospel is not sufficient to, to, uh, uh, unify and and to to solve our problems and many and a lot of it also is the fact that you know this world is still a fallen world as well and having to cope with that having to cope with the fact that christ reigns while we are still here on this earth awaiting his return anyway that that's just my thoughts okay well let's no it's good and i think uh just you know, again, we we're trying to stir the the mind and uh, saying, well, here's something that the uh, readers are interested in seeing, and so it was number two. And uh, when we get to number seven, it'll come up again, and so I'm going to reserve some more remarks okay. then because it's it it uh, just touches on this uh, with the re- critical race theory in terms of uh, is it, how it's applied, uh, how it's understood, how it's sort of been practiced. And so um, let's, I'm going to wait until we get okay. to number seven, and it'll add a little bit more uh, to uh, the discussion. Okay, well, the third article that we come to uh, is another essay by a pastor, uh, Andy Wilson, who is pastor in Laconia, New Hampshire, with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And the title is The Magistrate's Prohibition of Public Worship a lawful command in our present situation. Uh, the Pastor Wilson had written a review of the, a book, The Price of Panic, and another um, uh, part uh, a few uh, bits ago, weeks ago, or month, about a couple months ago, uh, in the Akula Report, and the citation for that review is in the article. Um, and so you can, uh, you can read it uh, there. Uh, you pick up uh, they um, uh, read the matter they, or the review. But anyway, hit the the thesis uh, of it was the, the, the book itself was basically attempting to, the price of panic, uh, give uh, how should we as a culture uh, respond to uh, you know some issues that are very that are strenuous that can create panic. Uh, obviously, in fact, that uh, most of 2020 was spent with the COVID uh, virus, uh, the COVID-19, and what happened in terms of uh, shutdowns and, uh, you know, the loss of jobs and the economic issue, closing schools, adjusting how we meet together, uh, masks, uh, washing hands, uh, social distancing. We have a whole new vocabulary. Uh, where does, how does the church, how should the church respond uh, to this? And I think the initial statement that uh, Pastor Wilson uh, brings out in this second, this is a postscript to his review, is uh, to just uh, look at this matter again after the review and um, just to, you know, reflect more. Again, this is sort of like an after action report. I don't want to overuse that word, but it, that is what it basically is to help us sort out the more broader theoretical question is the magistrate's. Uh, prohibition of public worship, a lawful command in our present situation. And in other words, there I th- don't think hardly anybody fought against the magistrate when we first 
heard about COVID and very glad that we had to do something. And so there, uh, there was great compliance. Now that we're sort of coming in the second, maybe the beginning of a third wave, and even with uh, you know vaccine in the way in the wings, uh, how should we respond if there appears to be um, a c- continuation of control uh, mandates? Uh, be careful in kinds of statements. Uh, so the question here is that he has, is some object to such criticism contending that members of the general population are not qualified to assess the science behind all of this and should, ju- should just go along with whatever is recommended by the experts. One problem with the ar- this argument is that there are many notable scientists and medical professionals who have criticized the unprecedented path that we have taken in responding to the pandemic and who have argued for a different approach. So they're not saying it's not there, it's just arguing for a different approach. Uh, For example, the Great Barrington Declaration, and this in the article is highlighted so it can be cited and you can read it, made up, uh, written by um, many, signed by over 50,000 medical and public uh, health scientists uh, from uh, in, throughout the world, but mainly in the, the U.S. Uh, so the Great Barrington Declaration, authored by epidem- epidemiologists from Stanford, Harvard, um, and Oxford universities, and signed by over 50,000 medical and public health scientists and medical practitioners, offers an alternative. And that's basically what I think uh, that we're moving to, is, is we had one-size-fits-all to start with because we didn't know much, we have a little bit more information, maybe a lot more information. And so now this more information uh, says, uh, let's not stay with a one-size-fits-all approach uh, to it. And and so he deals with, uh, in this uh, essay, uh, Pastor Wilson, the uh, picks up the theme within The Price of Panic, the book, and says, now, uh, here's how it's applied in culture. Uh, the relationship of the state, you know, to just us as citizens. And then he says, now, what should it do? How should it um, affect the practice uh, within the life of the church? And so he does end up in light of this. There are valid grounds for regarding the COVID induced state prohibitions of public worship and other orders that are discouraging fellowship and impeding ministry to be unlawful commands and instances of the magistrate interfering in matters of faith. It is true that a failure to comply with such state orders put churches and their leaders in legal jeopardy, but we should not make avoiding the threat of litigation a matter of first priority. As Christians, we have to remember that the fear of man lays a snare, but the but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, quoting from Proverbs 29:25. Uh, to the extent that following emergency orders hinders the promulgation of the gospel and the nurture of Christian faith and fellowship, the magistrate's commands are in opposition to God's commands. And so while we should try our best to submit, we can, uh, uh, it, it, as best we can to submit to the magistrate's orders, we are also obligated to do so when, uh, not to do so when uh, it prevents us from doing the things that God calls us to do. So this isn't a, uh, a firebrand. This is not causing Molotov cocktails into the middle of the uh, cir- circumstances. It's basically saying uh, now that we have more information 
uh, let's put all the parts together and see how they interact and what d the different parts of culture, uh, the state, the magistrate, the, uh, the business community, schools and church are to do with reference uh, to mm -hmm. how to handle mm -hmm. this pandemic. I think it was a it's a very uh, thought provoking article, Dominic, and it kind of builds on a little bit of what I asked last week in the podcast when I was saying, you know, how are churches now going to start to interpret what they're being told uh, in light of the fact that uh, what was said at the beginning of this pandemic was not true, uh, how we've been told so many different things throughout by people who are now openly admitting to. Uh, deceiving us. Uh, Fauci's one of them openly admitting, well, I haven't been entirely honest with you because I'm just trying to, you know, the goalposts are moving. And the thing he's he's essentially saying, look, you know, the American public wasn't ready to hear this yet. Now they are. So how can we how can we how can we in good conscience decide to form our lives and our church lives around what we're being told? Uh, and so this article does a good job of uh, kind of giving some more ideas to that. Uh, this art, this uh, paragraph here stuck out to me. It is true that God commands us to submit to the civil magistrate. See Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and to use all lawful endeavors to preserve our own and our neighbor's life. However, our submission to the magistrate is not an absolute submission when the magistrate's commands are in conflict with God's commands. Now, I you know, a couple of podcasts ago, I know people have a traditional interpretation of Romans 13, uh, and that's that's great. But I at least would posit to some out there that uh, if in, in, in the Romans 13 context, I believe that our submission would be to the United States Constitution, the law of the land, in this case, the Bill of Rights. And so if a magistrate is going against the Bill of Rights by uh, you know telling the church they can't meet or uh, li limiting how you can peaceably assemble, you know, the First Amendment, that sort of thing. Uh, then I, I I would have a question as to uh, what your obligation is um, scripturally there in an American context. And that also should also make us so thankful that we live in the country that we do live in. Um, Dominic, here here's the issue. I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this that do not trust the media when it comes to telling you who to vote for, covering news events accurately. Um, telling you, you know, I think there's a lot of people that would probably agree, man, the, the media is uh, they're, they're they're liberal at their very least. Some people think they've even become the enemy of the American people in terms of them intentionally deceiving you. My question would just be if you're not going to believe the media when it comes to uh, to to covering what's going on domestically and internationally in your day to day world when it comes to politics, why would you trust them when it comes to telling you how? to uh you know to to govern yourself as a church body or informing you there has got to be something else there's got to be some big changes happening because i know everybody wants to believe that there's no way these people are intentionally deceiving me me personally just me now that's maybe because i've 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 uh, monitored the media it's kind of been my job for a long time or it used to be my job it kind of still is now um i a lot of times whatever they say if you'll just believe the complete opposite, 180 degrees, you end up being right. Uh, it's a lot harder to do in real time because, you know, people will look at it like you're crazy. But a lot of the time, it's the complete opposite of whatever you're being told. Uh, it, absolutely. And the and, and again, this is a, a, a tension point uh, that goes all the way back. Um, uh, well, beyond even the beginning of the church, but the very one of the first conflicts uh, that the church faced 
where's the relationship to authority uh we uh, acts chapter three uh peter and john going into the area of the temple uh to time of prayer they see a man with a withered hand they heal him he uh he i mean withered body and he it, he hadn't walked his whole life and he'd been there 40 years we're told and he goes all of a sudden he's healed he goes running around everybody says hey that's the guy that for 40 years has been out there begging because he you know his body his bones i mean his muscles that atrophied and so forth and, and there he is leaping and jumping around and praising god and so the, the the Sanhedrin, the authority for the Jews at that point there, said, this can't be. And so they hauled Peter and uh, John before them and sort of gave them a scolding and said, what are you doing here? And uh, you can't do this. And in, uh, that's Acts 4. And in Acts 5, they even warned them, says, we forbid you to preach uh, about this anymore, about this man this on the way and of the way and so forth. And at that point, you know, Peter makes a statement in both when you look at Acts 4 and 5, whether or not we can obey you or not, we have to obey God. And so he put, you know, sets it over again. So he, that's the first area uh, that the early church faced was how do they function in a context where the uh, laws and the those who are in under whose authority they function, whether it's the religious leaders who were also serving as uh, the uh, legal authorities, whether it was the Romans and so forth, and then all the way down through history. So it's something that we always, each generation has to wrestle with and find that fine point uh, and means by which uh, this is to be done. Uh, that we're not given permission to be rebels. Uh, we're not permissioned to be just um, people who bow and take it. Uh, we have to find that happy middle in the context, in the time in which we're living. So that's a, a good thing for us to, um, you know, look at uh, and study. So I commend this article by Andy yep. Wilson uh, to be something to study, uh, be stretched, uh, look at some of the citations he has in the article. I think it would also be helpful I, for uh, uh, yeah. sessions and other groups. I would just I would just add in terms of the the specific Romans 13 I think in a post uh, 1789 era uh, we have a stronger case uh, about you know what the Constitution means considering Romans 13 than the than the uh, the the framers and founders of this country in the 18th century before the document was written uh, so it would be very interesting uh, academically to go back and figure out. What those men's in terms of the American Revolution, what their frame of mind was in justifying going to war with the most powerful military force on the planet at that time, uh, you know, the Redcoats. Just just uh, just food for thought out there. Yes. Well, that's what I'm saying is that in the context of our history, every one of us has to wrestle and and it's the principle is the same in each generation. But its application it will look a little bit different, and we need just and so we just need to study that. So we we're not creating we're not just uh, pitchfork based people, and at the same time we are very reasoned uh, in order to function be, to be faithful uh, to the commands of God and serve under His um, power and His direction in our lives. Okay, well number four gives us uh, takes in a different uh, direction. It's a quote from um, 
we and we mentioned it last week carl truman's book the rise and triumph of the modern modern self the rise and triumph of the modern self and there's uh, just a quote out of this that someone put together uh in one part and labeled it a mistake christians make regarding the lgbtq plus movement and it just sort of highlights that point within the bar book and we definitely as we said at last uh, our last episode that you definitely need to make sure that you're that you read uh, Carl Truman's book on uh, the modern the rise and triumph of the modern self it's uh, I think going to become and probably already is fairly much a classic that will help us to define where we are but anyway just with regard to this one uh, this aspect of it that uh, the issue is um, the what is the mistake Christians make regarding the LGBT plus community uh, movement? And basically it it boils down to the we miss that we miss it in the Christian community by not recognizing that it's not just about sexual ident- uh, sexual preference, but it's more identity. So, for instance, he has this uh, quote. Uh, it is often asked. Why is it such a big deal that a cake baker won't bake a cake for a gay wedding? Well, it is a it's a big deal for the LGBTQ community because in refusing to bake a cake for the gay, for a gay wedding, you're not simply depriving that person of an item of food. You're actually denying their identity. And that's where he's putting beginning to put his finger on this thing that we he says we're making a mistake if we don't recognize how important this is. I think that that's where the challenge lies for Christians when they're thinking about these issues is that we need to realize that they're not simply debating the bounds of where of where legitimate or of where legitimate and illegitimate Christian behavior begin and end. We're actually debating what it is that can constitutes us as human beings. So so we should we define ourselves in terms of our sexual desires or those desires uh, be those desires gay or straight or should we define ourselves using some other register or point of reference so the 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 reason why he gives here and where we can make a mistake if we focus only on the uh, matter of uh, practice uh, then we we are missing the boat although that's an important thing to consider in the, the whole dynamic but it's also the identity. It's not just enough that they're free to do that. Those who have a that identify sexual with a particular sexual identity, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. Uh, but in this case, the debate is with the homosexual identity. Uh, that it's not just that they're okay. You do whatever you feel you want to do, but realize there are consequences to it, and you can make all those uh, teaching things. Uh, but it's that they want the confirmation, affirmation and certification of culture. Uh, and therefore, we want to make sure that that uh, cake baker, no matter what his views or her views may be, uh, has to affirm what it is. So if we want a cake, you have to bake the cake, period. And so we're not going to go to a homosexual baker and ask him or her to bake the cake. We're going to make, force you to do it because we, our identity is so important that that um, you must uh, align yourself with what we believe. And I really think that's an important thing for us to uh, consider uh, in this. And so this just challenges 
us in the church to uh, consider what we're as we're debating this, as we're looking at as as elders uh, in local churches are making uh, policy statements and uh, how they're going to counsel members, how they're going to structure their ministry uh, policies with regard to using the building for meetings. Uh, for weddings, uh, for other kinds of circumstances, all of these, it, it has ramifications for all of um, these kinds of things. And the if we, we make a mistake, Carl Truman says, alleges here, that if we don't recognize the strength of the concept of identity uh, in this process. Yeah, you're right. And later on in the article, it does go on to talk about how, you know, as Christians, our identity, we uh, we are identified by being in Christ. And that is our identity, even though, you know, a longer Christian walk in the midst of sanctification, we forget that a lot of times. I mean, I know I do that. Hey, my identity is not in doing this podcast. My identity is not my identity is in Christ. And uh, it's out of that that, you know, everything is under um, th- this this was you you picked the part out Dominic that I was going to focus on too and that's the cake baker and that sort of thing you know this is why br- brings up a really good point this is why there is such militancy on the part of the LGBTQ movement and that's because it, it is their fundamental identity and the lack of approval that's at stake and I really firmly believe they want society as well as Christianity and Christians and the Christian cake baker to heartily approve of their lifestyle. And that's why it, that's why the argument from Christians of, well, I don't need the government to, uh, you know, to give me a marriage certificate. My marriage is valid because it's, you know, it's, it's in front of my, uh, my God, my wife, the community there at the wedding that's going to hold me accountable to my vows. So I don't need that. That argument fell flat on them. The more libertarian approach, if you will, because uh, they want the validation. They want the government to validate and say, your marriage is the same as that marriage. And of course, it has slippery slopes, correct here. It's kind of opened up the doorway to all kinds of things here. Um, I have had firsthand experience with uh, how how militantly consistent the LGBTQ uh, people can be. I did a man on the street interview uh, during a controversial bill when there was a, a an attempt to restore the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, it's an act that was uh, done in the state of Arkansas, and it, it mimicked what uh, was done in 1993 and signed by, uh, I think, then Bill Clinton. And, and now, all of a sudden, it was, a, it was an issue that was made an issue. Corporate America was involved. They didn't like the publicity. So I was going. There was a massive protest, and so there was a lot of LGBT people there, and so I was asking – you know, uh, about this very same scenario. And it was very evident. And it's because like this article says, it's about their identity. It's who it's who they believe they are. It's everything really that, that they believe they're made up of or of substances, who their sexual identity or what their sexual identity is. They don't believe a cake baker should have a business, meaning there needs to be some sort of social contract. You should have thought about that before you decided to want to be a cake baker, that if you want to be a cake baker, you're going to have to. I'm entitled to your services because this is who I am. I mean, think how think how important that concept is if they really, truly believe it. This also bled into their doubting the religious convictions. They think, uh, generally speaking, what I found in interviewing people was they really just think it, you're a bigot that's making up this belief in God in order to use it against them. That is a very common uh, assumption I found, and they're consistent in even going toward the abortion argument. Well, what what if somebody has a moral objection towards a doctor maybe being forced to, to 
to to perform an abortion. It's the same thing. Well, you should have thought about that before you decided to become a doctor. So um, this point is if you really consider the significance of it, which is my identity is who I sleep with or who I want to sleep with, then you realize why they are so militant. And then consistently, when you apply it throughout the rest of the industries that this might affect. That's right. Oh, and so that that's one of the reasons that the the, the whole book that uh, Carl Truman wrote is important. But this snippet uh, that was uh, made a, just as a brief article really lays out something that is a mistake he's calling it or calling our attention to. And we need to be aware of that so that we'll we'll be able to have a proper uh, defense. And so he does end up in this uh, statement says um, that uh, we're rooted in uh, in the image of God, rooted in our union with Christ. That brings with it a framework of se- sexual behavior, celibacy outside of marriage, uh, chastity within it as an important part of who we are and how we behave. So in other words, be- you, you come to an identity, you're rooted in that, and then you behave consistently with that idea. So that you you your identity is not tied to what you're doing, it's who you are. So you have that settled. Uh, then you develop your uh, your ethics, your morals, uh, the application of what you believe yourself to be. And that's and if you uh, if people don't agree with you, then they if you're not comfortable with that, uh, it creates a real problem. So. Uh, it's something for uh, everyone of us to consider, so we commend that uh, to you. That's number that was number uh, four um, on their our list. Now number five uh, takes us in a different way. Now we put on our sort of our prognostication hat. Um, Tom uh, Tom Rayner, who deals a lot with uh, church uh, development, church growth, uh, cons- consultation. Um, sort of one of those who studies the trends, does a lot of uh, work in that area and studying that area, uh, taking uh, polls and the like, just to get a real feel for the life of the church. Uh, And he says, okay, here it is a new year. When a new year comes, we like to make not only resolutions, but also uh, prognostications of what's, what, what will happen. Of course, we don't know if these will happen, but what do the trend lines seem to say? All right. So he comes up with 12, major trends for churches in 2021, 12 major trends, and we won't uh, go through all of them, but uh, the uh, it's, a, it's something for you to uh, look at and see whether or not it, how it applies in your local setting and uh, with reference to the life of the church. So I find it uh, interesting that number one in this, uh, what can we expect in the major uh, trend movement is massive growth of co-vocational ministry. Okay, it will be increasingly common for churches to have a fewer full-time staff. Some will hold other jobs because churches cannot afford full-time pay and benefits. Some of the staff will choose to be co-vocational so that they can have a marketplace ministry. Both of these factors will result in a massive number of staff moving from full-time to uh, co-vocational. So that's one trend that he uh, sees coming down the pike. Um, they used to be, we used the word bivocational. Now he's using the word co-vocational, meaning the same thing, that they, there, there's intentionality in seeking one 
a vocation in the marketplace as well as a vocation within the context of the church's ministry and that uh, this will be become we're going to become more obvious churches are going to be more open to it uh, maybe because of the uh, covid and sort of the um one of the results of covid is going to be that there's sort of going to be a, a falling out i was just reading another statement that a pastor put forward in a, a pastor's group uh what when you start going getting back together in your worship when all that finally everything shakes out and we don't feel threatened by the pandemic uh what what's what's your church going to look like in attendance and it was interesting i hadn't really thought about in terms of numbers but quite a few pastors uh said well uh we already see our officers are strong and they're committed uh, we have those sort of, uh, you know, the folks who are always involved and engaged in various parts of ministry. They seem to be engaged, but our but our attendance is, we believe, will be less, and that most likely we're going to lose anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of the members who probably never come back. Uh, maybe they'll go to another church. Maybe they won't go anywhere. And that's an interesting, you know, factor number that I hadn't even really thought about. So uh, if that happens, that'll affect church budgets. And so you paying some uh, staff full time, uh, especially if you have a church large enough to have maybe multi-staff, that's going to be uh, an interesting shift that is taking place if this, if uh, Rainer is uh, correct. Uh, The other one he gives number two is baby boomers will be greater in number than children in the majority of churches. This again is going along with what's happening in culture. Uh, Baby boomers are those who were born from 1946 to 1964, and they created a demographic bubble in the whole demographic uh, 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 thermostat or temperature gauge. And and it says this uh, demographic shift has had three causes. First, the birth rate is declining, so we're not having as many children to replace those who are dying. Uh, second, the boomer generation is large in number. Second, only to the millennials. The millennials, those born from about 1981 to 2000. Uh, and then third, increasing longevity means boomers will be around for a while. And if a church is not considering what senior adult involvement looks like, it, it's already behind the curve. So it's interesting that the generation, the baby boomers, that sort of sort of pushed uh, to build more schools to, that required having larger children's ministry and facilities for children, education wings for churches and uh, youth groups and all of that stuff. <laughs> they're, they're now saying they're going to push to have uh, adult uh, ministries, which is not a bad thing. It's just that w- what happens to the rest, you know, the various other layers of uh, of our population in terms of uh, how you minister and all that Rainer is saying here is that the baby boomer uh, ministry is still going to continue to be larger so instead of hiring uh, maybe a director of children's ministry you might be director of uh, baby boomer ministries or older generation or uh, calling up with some other kind of cute name that would give a title to them so Paul what do you I, I just, you, I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I just hope a lot of 
these trends, I know they're just projections, and uh, I follow the logic in making the projections, and let's just hope that's not the case. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would just say, what if we pray for growth? What if we pray for, uh, and, and I don't mean phony growth, I mean, I, I mean, you know, supernatural, um, spiritual growth in, uh, in numbers, you know? I mean, who knows what could happen in 2020, 2021. 2020's been kind of a rough year. You know, if there, if you take the last 10 years, if there's ever been a year to fall to your knees more than you would, <laughs> I would, I would project that there were more people that have been praying this year than maybe in years past. So you never know what might happen when churches open up and say, you know what, we are going to worship the one true living God. You never know. Maybe maybe this, this, this will be wrong. I hope it is. Okay. Well, uh, this is something that uh, if you really are interested in trends and at least what seems to be coming around the corner, because there are some yes. indicators now, uh, th- this is worth looking at, and you can add to it. This, this is just one list, and you may see other uh, trends that are are coming, but the just we we don't know for certain because it is a trend. A trend means that you see indicators, and uh, you know uh, we we can move closer uh, to that. But let's be careful not to assume that it's going to remain uh, the same all the time. So we commend that the 12 major trends for churches in 2021, and I think it's really 2021 and beyond because it's. Uh, usually ministry is much more long term than than uh, it is. OK, well, then number has uh, come to number six. Uh, another uh, interesting one, this sort of uh, brings it into um, what happens when churches uh, or denominations begin to decline and what takes place. As you know, the United Methodist Church has been going through quite a uh, a shift in w- within itself and the sort of the uh, the conservatives and the progressives within the United Methodist Church basically have come to an agreement uh, that they hope over the next few years to implement uh, about how to have a gracious separation um, and um, and and they've worked out details. But anyway, the, this particular article is written by Dave uh, uh, Clo- uh, Closen. And he talks about denomination, a new woke denomination is a warning sign to Christians. So what's the new woke denomination? Well, over the weekend, just uh, last this in the last couple of weeks, the formation of a new Methodist denomination was announced during an online worship service hosted by former and current Methodist church leaders, according to organizers. And this is the name they are going to choose, the Liberation Methodist Connection. And the title, the... We have to have an initial for everything. It's LMX, LMX, Liberation Ah. Methodist Connection, as the group uh, will be called, is a socially progressive denomination that will reimagine what (laughs) it means to follow Jesus. Sorry. But even a cursory review of the new denomination reveals nothing close to Orthodox Christianity. And so this article is saying, here's a, quote, woke denomination uh, that's basically coming out of Methodism. This is part of that group that if the if they had prevailed and they were uh, numbers wise apparent going to prevail when they had the global Methodist uh, conference in St. Louis uh, and the, basically the Af- because it was global the uh, churches from Africa the pastors and elders from Africa uh, really turned the ties because they still are holding to 
old Methodism, going back to Wesley, holding to the Bibles where God in the gospel was means of salvation versus the shift that had taken place in the Methodist church in the West and especially here in the United States. So it was more progressive and they thought that they were able, finally had gotten enough uh, power and numbers that they were going to sort of force the progressive nature onto the whole global Methodism. And they, uh, that it didn't work out that way. They were, they lost the vote because of the strength of uh, conservatives here and the uh, African Methodist churches. So the, this, so that's when they worked out these details. Now this liberation Methodist connection is sort of the woke of the, the wokest of the woke. And they decided that they will just go ahead and create a new uh, denomination. Um, the, uh, it goes on to say here, the creation of the new Methodist denomination is not surprising. At the beginning of the year, representatives of the United Methodist Church tentatively agreed to a proposal to split the nation's second largest Protestant denomination over, quote, fundamental differences, close quote, regarding doctrinal differences. In recent years, the denomination had reached an impasse on questions related to the morality of homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and the ordination of clergy who identified as gay. So the Part of the wokeness is that the the driving train, this goes back to what we just read with the article on um, the mistake that evangelicals can make if we're not careful, is driven by the sexual ethics here or understanding of the sec human sexuality. And that's a driving, has been a driving force with that, this group anyway. So the anticipated vote to split the nomination was uh, set to take place at the 2020 General Conference in May. However, due to the corona coronavirus pandemic, the vote has been delayed till the fall of 2021. And uh, then it goes on explaining what the, some of the details of that uh, agreed upon division and separating assets and uh, dividing assets and the like. So, but it ends by saying, thus, while the LMX, that is the Liberation Methodist Connection, uh, will likely remain a small group of former United Methodists and others, it stands as a cautionary tale for churches and denominations around the country. In an age when doctrine is not taken seriously, Christians, for the sake of faithfulness, must insist on sound doctrine and fidelity to God's word. Uh, and the reason they basically had part of this rift is that there was this movement saying, let the culture set the pattern versus the uh, conservative or the uh, those within uh, more the evangelical movement of the Methodism that said, we need sound doctrine in order to have fidelity to God's word, and that should drive our ministry. And so you could see how that happened. So the woke has caused, according to this article, then the division within the church and the decline also, and so it's a warning sign to other churches. It definitely is a warning sign, and I'm going to pick up where you left off in the article because it, when it goes over the proposal, and you hit on this earlier, Dominic, in terms of the details of the proposal, again, within the uh, United Methodist Church, progressives within the United Methodist Church will give a newly formed traditionalist Methodist denomination $25 million dollars. Local churches that choose to affiliate with the traditionalist denomination may retain their assets, including their church buildings and properties. Moreover, conservative clergy may retain their pensions. These concessions were possible because conservatives maintain a governing majority within the United Methodism, despite the fact that the American Methodist 
leadership is liberal. Hmm. So mm-hmm. what might be a way that other denominations that are looking at what's coming stop uh, the the what what's happened to the United Methodists? And even though the deal is somewhat favorable to the traditionalist view, the uh, I would just say the the scriptural view, um, it would be to not allow. I mean, it's good that you have a governing majority, but don't don't allow your leadership to become liberal. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but I think that is the winner. I mean, that's the key here. If your leadership is not reflective of the majority of your denomination, you have a problem that is coming quickly. That's right. And uh, so this article, I think, really just, again, is one of those trends that we could look at that we spoke about with the last article. Um, What does a church that uh, individuals as well uh, that appear woke, to use the more common phrase now, uh, and sort of be aware of what's taking place around us? Uh, what does it look like in that person's life? What does it look like for a denomination? And this individual, by given the title and the article, uh, basically is expressing the fact that uh, fidelity, that, that sound doctrine, fidelity scripture really is important. And if you want to be the real woke church, that's where you need to be. So that's <clears throat> number six. Uh, number seven brings us to um, a back to what I was we were talking about earlier w- <clears throat> with um, with uh, the Pastor Johnson's uh, Doc Johnson's article on the evangelical um, folks uh, voters and this is the uh, number seven is hillbilly allergy elegy if you recall that was written by J.D. Vance. Uh, book and then back in 2016, very popular, made the uh, New York Times bestseller list, was number one for quite a while, and it sort of captured the imagination about what is this thing about being a hillbilly, and of course, elegy means lament, um, and <clears throat> and the title is by, uh, this is a, an opinion piece by Larry Ball, who is retired minister in, of the Presbyterian Church in America, living up in the Kingsport Tennessee area and the Tri-Cities area there, and it's called the Hillbilly Elegy, A Threat to Critical Race Theory. And you recall that we spoke about the race theory uh, earlier, and here basically what uh, Larry Ball is saying is, uh, I am what uh, J.D. Vance was talking about because he says I'm a hillbilly. I grew up in it, and uh, he even, so if you saw the movie that uh, was just out, I think it was on Prime, uh, it picked up on some aspects of it, doesn't deal with the um, whole book, uh, <clears throat> where uh, he says, yes, I grew up that way. And yes, we do say syrup, not syrup, and because that became one of the sort of talking points in the movie. And <clears throat> and so the uh, in, in talking about it, that this is a threat to the critical race theory. In that the I said Prime by the way it was Netflix I was mistaken uh, the uh, he says the movie traces uh, Vance's life uh, the book deprive derives his title from the stereotypical name of hillbilly given to those who were raised in Appalachia uh, there are several takeaway takeaways from this book uh, first in my view it really is not so much a book or movie about Appalachia as it is cult, its culture but more about the consequences of sin and, and in any culture. 
And one could take the same storyline and transfer it to any geographical part of the country, and there would not be much difference. However, curiosity about Appalachian culture gives the book an inviting and magnetic drawing power for outsiders and insiders, too, he says. Um, but it's he goes on to say, secondly, uh, it is obvious that in Mr. Vance's immediate family, there were little influence of the Christian faith. It seems that no one ever goes to church except for weddings and funerals. Such Christianity may be more harmful and dangerous than an outright denial of the Christian faith. Nominal Christian Christianity is deceitful and harmful uh, and a harmful curse. It gives an assurance of being a Christian with little evidence of the new birth. But thirdly, he says, it says the... And as I noted above, the major controversy around the book is that it contradicts the narrative of identity politics. And remember, this is what uh, Trump, Carl Truman was also talking about. Uh, presently dominant in our country, we are told that racial injustice is only a problem with minority groups who are non-white. Uh, white men are by definition oppressors. That is the standard presupposition of identity politics. Because the book portrays many white people who came from poor and uneducated backgrounds, the book uh, betrays the current narrative of social justice. The book indirectly tells us that whites can be victims of so-called inequities, inequality, or so-called equality also. So <clears throat> the uh, point is that it it challenges the the academic thing, that, which is developed mainly as a way to explain the uh, critical race theory, uh, because uh, every, they're probably in every country, there there are always groups that are being uh, that are the oppressors, and then the groups that are the oppressed, and and at any time those those titles can shift around, and that's basically what Larry Ball's getting at here, uh, picking up from his experience in growing up in Appalachia, then reading uh, J.D. Vance's book and seeing the movie and saying, you know, we need to realize that the real issue here is the consequences of the fall and how it affects every aspect of culture uh, that no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, uh, we cannot fix it by ourselves. We can make it better around the edges but ultimately, um, the only answer ultimately is as constructing, first of all, a personal relationship with Christ. And then uh, secondly, uh, out of that, a, uh, the, the, the ethos and the ethics of Scripture speaking and structuring lives to give definition and meaning uh, day to day. Yeah, you know, what really stood out to me here is that Rotten Tomatoes gave this a 26% favorable rating on uh, on Netflix, and it garnered an 86% favorable rating among the average public audience. Uh, the uh, the critics that work for Rotten Tomatoes uh, were probably afraid of being labeled a white supremacist if you gave a movie about the plight of – the potential plight of people who happen to be white. I'm sorry. I get a little worked up about this sometimes, uh, Dominic. It's, uh, it's pretty – pretty frustrating when things go against the narrative they don't get the attention and it just goes to show you that there is an apparatus there's a narrative that they're trying to accomplish a goal here in the minds of americans and that goal is marxism uh that goal is to highlight our differences uh, so that we will fight amongst ourselves and it appears to be working in a lot of different facets in our culture right now and 
that's why it is so important that the church gets this right. It's so important that the church rejects critical race theory and this wokeism that is coming, trying to, you know, this, to, to, to complement the gospel or put the gospel in the kind and, and, and these contexts that are only being done so that you don't have to have difficult conversations with people who are being hypnotized by what's cool in the culture, what's being promoted right now. And I'll, I'll reiterate what I said earlier, Dominic, every, Every major uh, cultural influencer with a giant platform, we're talking Hollywood, we're talking professional sport, we're talking the mainstream media, all of it are in lockstep with the same narratives, period. They, they are all saying the same thing, the same woke thing. And uh, it is the predominant force that shoved down our throats where, where you look everywhere in our culture uh, and to and really, I, I would just challenge anybody that would suggest that that's not the case, that that's not true. Anyway. Yeah. Well, it, it, that's that's the whole point. And all of these are touching on ministry because this is where the church is wrestling with these things in the in the cultural area. Uh, so it's uh, you know, so people are, are coming up with uh, theories like critical race theory uh, and others that will uh, try and get to the answer. But because they are not, from the church's point of view, based on real understanding of uh, that human identity of being uh, that we're uh, either in Adam or in Christ in terms of identity. And if we're in Adam, then there's really no fix ultimately unless we turn to Christ, uh, that it, it, it creates a, a real tension and ours. That's the reason the, these things are, I think, are forcing us right. I think these articles are the ones that are being hit the most because this is where people are have an itch they need to scratch and they need to uh, have understanding. And that's how I'm perceiving and reading what's happening right now in the life of the uh, church. And because uh, now what we basically have been talking about has been uh, the sexual identity. Now we're talking about racial identity. Uh, we're uh, talking about how uh, the uh, the relationship of the church and believers to the magistrate. So we're talking about our uh, our corporate ecclesiastical identity. And so we, we need, uh, where do we go to find those definitions that stabilize, give us a stable foundational position to be able to stand and be able to have confidence in what we're saying and what we're, our ministry is all about. So the, the challenge that uh, Larry Ball gives in this um, small uh, piece. It's really worth the, the read. And again, small group discussion and further exploration, right? Uh, really be worth it. Yeah. And, okay. and just real quick, uh, just yeah. real quick, uh, some context, just if you guys don't know, you know, critical race theory was in the, the public's mind well before you ever heard of it um, in our modern day evangelical worlds having to debate whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, whether it's, uh, you know, compatible with the gospel, whether it's whether it's not. The first time I heard of it was secular news stories talking about Barack Obama's professor uh, when he was coming uh, up in one of the universities he went to. His name is Derek Bell. That is D-E-R-R-I-C-K Bell. If you really want to know where this started, I would suggest you start there. And it just dawned on me as you were talking, Dominic, I cannot believe, honestly, I really cannot believe now I'm remembering where critical race theory first, when I first heard of it, it we're talking about a professor that taught former President Barack Obama 
and now we're debating whether or not to adopt it in our churches. It, it really is. It, it's it's um, boy, it's sad. I'll just well, it, let sad. me just say we push it one more level again. This is where Carl Truman's book helps so much that even that, even where Derek Bell got his, uh, goes even further back and with uh, and Truman out lays out the, that philosophical background. So what is said philosophically, you may not understand all the philosophy. You may think they're a bunch of um, theoretical eggheads and all that kind of stuff, but it seeps into the culture uh, through education, uh, through different means. It gets into the uh, seminaries, gets into the pulpits, gets into our Sunday school literature and uh, Bible studies and so forth. So it has this uh, long-term effect. So we need to always look at something, not just in the moment, but we have to see its roots, not just look at the fruits. And that's an important thing. Well, coming to the eighth um, one, it basically continues this, so we don't have to labor it, but, but uh, point it out to you. Uh, the title is You Will Be Silenced, and will is all capitalized to give that sort of strength. You Will Be Silenced by Bill Muhlenberg. And um, he gives a commentary, and he starts out, one hates to do it, and one hates to sound like a broken record, but really, I told you so. <laughs> Indeed, a number of us tried to tell you. Uh, many of us warned and sounded the alarm and pleaded and did all we could to wake folks up. This is he wanted you to be woke way before wake woke was a big issue before it was too late. And what is it he's referring to? He says, I refer, of course, to the unrelenting homosexual jargonut, which seeks to crush everything in its path. And I offer uh, I and others warned that granting special rights to homosexuals and including recklessly redefining marriage would be a slippery slope to a ty uh, tyrannical future in which freedom of speech, freedom of religion and freedom of conscience would uh, all be under threat. Now, that's a strong statement that we warned you that all of this would come out of just that. In other words, you want those rights to somebody. OK, if you want to do that, OK, knock yourself out, do it. But the just as we've just mentioned a few moments ago, there are ripple effects. There are philosophical, theoretical inputs into culture that we can't avoid. And so um, Muhlenberg uh, talks about this and you will be silenced. Uh, it would open a, pa a Pandora's box that would likely never be shut. I certainly made these warnings um, dozens, if not hundreds of times over the past few decades. I said everything uh, that could uh, would change if we went down that path. Nothing would stay the same, and conservatives and Christians would especially be in the crosshairs, which we probably uh, feel on it. So uh, this is a lengthy article with uh, got good citations, and he gives illustrations and so forth that you can um, look at and read and think through, and again, for discussion, to realize how do we approach it? Again, we don't want to just be reactionaries, okay? Uh, because the same thing can be said about the Christian faith as we can say about these things. Why can't it seep into culture as it is being taught and promulgated and in influencing the lives of believers and the life of the church? So the churches are living out uh, the salty and light impact of the gospel in their lives so that having that influence in and around our families and our friends and and the the tasks that we're involved in so we need to at least think of that if if, if a critical race theory and 
freedom for redefining uh, marriage between um, men and women and so forth can have that kind of effect over time, then the gospel can also be a theoretical, theological, philosophical notion that fits as well. But until we realize that, the in the terms of the power play in culture itself, we need to realize that the the dominant culture right now and the movement is uh, towards we will silence you and if you speak up we will take you out. Yeah, and so it you know so don't be silenced. Uh, you you fail to mention in this article it does mention uh, you know drag queens. So yes. that you go, go read about that. Uh, from Australia, two drag performers have taken an Australian conservative political activist to the Queensland Human Rights Commission under the Anti-Discrimination Act over a blog he wrote. Okay, in uh, the title was "Drag Queens Are Not for Kids." So this is all I have to say on that. So I know we got to move on. Uh, okay, that's right. Okay. Well, it, it, we've uh, already but, covered it, and it just we this, we have. But what I yeah. what I would say is I would say that that they're coming for your children, and the love of your children may very well force that that line to become even more stark to where we become the 21st century equivalent to Amish people. Uh, you, you know, where why did you give up electricity? Well, I, I just I'm sorry I had to withdraw. Let's let's hope it doesn't come to that point and yeah. we're not silenced. But I, I, I'm kind of, you know, looking 10 steps ahead here. Well, yeah, let me just let me just sort of give a, another maybe a different positive spin. If you look at the first 300 years of the, the Christianity from the uh, Pentecost until Constantine, and so that's about 300. He constantly was said to have been converted, uh, come to Christ in 313 or something. So look at that, that, that Christianity was completely illegal and it was the picked on religion. It was not favored. Uh, and yet during that period of time, that 300 years, without one law being passed, without having any friends in the Roman Senate or having Caesars that supported the truth, there was no power. So if anybody was part of the uh, underclass, it was the Christians. The church grew and the uh, influence, the ethical impact of, of Christianity as well, along the power of the gospel, uh, grew throughout the empire. With, but it, we didn't need to trust the, uh, the governing authorities for it to move forward. And uh, so that's the reason I'm saying is we don't have to uh, withdraw in order to have our impact, we just need to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, in order to know how to walk within it and uh, go back and read uh, some of the early church fathers uh, and their apologies. Yes. Uh, you know, Justin Martyr and all those guys that would wrote wrote apologies to uh, to give an apologetic statement about why Christianity is valid and so forth. And so, anyway, I just want to make sure we. Don't leave it in the dire sense. We don't have to go back to the dark ages. <laughs> and we could be like the early Christians who lived out the salty influence and impact of the gospel in their lives. Okay, definitely, number nine. Definitely more encouraging than what I said. <laughs> yes, right. That's the reason I said that. I want to encourage you. Yeah, right? Okay, the um, we change it just a little bit. This is more personal. as written by Dr. Joseph Piper, who's president of uh, Greenville Theological Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina or Taylor's South Carolina, uh, dealing with lust in which he um, g gives real good help, uh, pastoral counsel about the, the reality of uh, that we that everyone faces with uh, reference to um, 
uh, you know, to uh, dealing with the, 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 all the sights and sounds and everything that's um, around us. And you would really find this uh, a helpful guide to think through, ponder it. Uh, he lays it out in a very healthy biblical framework uh, that uh, then encourages this, not just another uh, how-to. It's really something that in, in, uh, goes deep within your being uh, because it, it flows out of uh, your, uh, you know, your, your inner life, that identity. There is that real change of identity that we are in Christ. And what does that mean with reference to where our mind settles and the things that we watch? So I would encourage this um, article, Dealing with Lust by Dr. Piper, as one that will be very encouraging uh, to you. Yeah, uh, it it really is. And uh, number five uh, was uh, there's there's, a I guess, seven lists he goes through. Number five was certainly something that I uh, was was a new concept to me personally. Put a restraint upon your appetite. Food not in, not to excess. This direction does not mean that we made it enjoy God's good gifts of food and drink and pleasure, of feasting with friends, but it's a sober reminder that if we pander to our physical appetites in one area, we will be more prone to fall in other areas. I believe that's true. Absolutely. So uh, that's number nine. Number 10 is another one from Bill Muhlenberg. Uh, the whole world is turning toward evil. And uh, he sort of uh, hits nail on the head one, uh, once again with where uh, all true believers will be concerned about the way things are heading, which we just uh, spoke about. And how do we go about to realize what the issues really are, who the real enemies are or what they are? And then how can we, um, as, um, you know, how does the church function uh, in in this context? Uh, for instance, he says, in terms of the positive side, most of the greatest church growth is now found in places like Africa, Asia, and Latin America. All of this, uh, not to say that the West is without Christian witness, but the two points I made above do accurately describe the scene. True Christians are quickly becoming a remnant there, and hatred and enmity towards the great faith, uh, the faith is great, greatly on the increase. So the more that you are pelted, the more you have to realize, no, why, why do I believe? So what is the way forward for Western believers? It is... So uh, it is much the same as it has always been. We put on our full trust of God and who, uh, the God who is still on the throne. We keep busy doing the work of the kingdom, and we must learn to pray more and do more for Christ while we still can. So he's calling us to engage in a very forceful way to re remember that the, that the principle of, of spiritual warfare is not just what I do personally in my life. It's if you look in Ephesians uh, 6, 10 and following, it says that it's a cosmic warfare of which we are part where Christ is, and is empowering his church to feel to fight against the we're, the ways of the evil one. Uh, and it basically is a fulfillment in that warfare uh, and a continuing urging of what he said to Peter uh, and I that he says, and um, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. That is, the hell itself will not be able to overcome, overwhelm the church. In fact, it's the church that is the aggressor 
and is knocking down gates uh, the that in the, those places where Satan has uh, set up his cities and behind each city wall is all yes. the perversity and darkness and uh, ugliness of uh, life. And we come along with the gospel and we have the gospel of grace and we knock down gates and we enter the city. And then we go to Colossians 113, where it says, and God has rescued us. He rescues us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of the son whom he loves. So that's basically what Muhlenberg is saying in this uh, piece here is the world has turned to evil. It's, it overwhelms us because it is ugly. It's not beautiful. Uh, and But we don't despair uh, because we are to engage uh, as the people of God and, um, and you know, recognize that we, we are equipped with this armor and we are the, on the offense um, assaulting the gates of Satan, and he then uses that to claim his elect for himself. Yeah, uh, who is this unwashed Philistine that defames the God of Israel? Exactly. Right? Uh, I mean, that's that that's what we have here. We just the bigger they are, the harder they fall. If the giants get bigger, we we still know the gates of hell will not prevail. I totally agree, Dominic. Good. Okay. Well, that's the those are the ten. Uh, most read articles for this past week that will be in the Aquila Report newsletter for January 5, 2021. 20, uh, and trust that you will take time to read them, review them, uh, use them for Bible studies, for uh, discussion groups, uh, to stir your heart, your mind, your engagement in life. Uh, don't be frightened by it. Uh, we want remember that he who is greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Uh, but we need to be aware, we need to be um, discerning. Uh, we need to look at life uh, through the lens of Scripture and the reasonableness and the rationality that God gives us there and uh, be um, have a sense of real hope that Jesus is on the throne and he does he will take us through these difficult times and and that no uh, there has been no generation, in all any world since uh, since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden that has not faced these kinds of things. And so with this is not the worst time ever in the history of the world. Uh, this is just another time that is bad. And we, with the light of the gospel, have hope. So encourage you to read that. Paul, do you have any last words? Amen. Not oh, a I like that. I not like a that. not a woman. No, not a woman. No, we don't want that. <laughs> this this is the whole point. Uh, we so thank you for joining with us, and let's remind you that as we go forward in this year, that you read regularly the Aquila Report. Share. Uh, feel free to forward the newsletter you get to others. Uh, engage your mind, your heart, uh, to see the power of Christ and His Lordship in all things uh, work its way out. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.